Bibles to Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53, and you can uh, put your marker or your finger in uh, chapter 52, verse 14, because uh, we'll start there before we move into chapter 53, because they really go together. But those who are familiar with God's word realize that Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 give us a much clearer description of the crucifixion of Jesus than anywhere else in the Bible. The Holy Spirit has not given us these gruesome details for the curious to stare at. It's said of the brutal crowd who murdered Jesus that they sat down and they watched him. And you and I are not allowed to be a part of that crowd. Even they didn't see all the gruesome details of that moment. Because remember, God covered the land with darkness for three hours to cover his son's agony. And you and I will probably never know, even in eternity, how much Jesus really suffered. And remember, for us. Maybe God didn't want us to become familiar with something we didn't need to know about. He didn't want us to treat something so sacred as a common thing. And, and that's what I was saying in, in our prayer. Is that we can become so familiar with something that it just becomes, eh. Okay, we hear it all the time. We take it for granted. We know it happened. But let it not ever become so familiar that we are just ho-hum about it. That it becomes a common thing. And we need to remind ourselves all the time about the danger of becoming familiar with holy things. Isaiah said in chapter 52, verse 11, Be clean, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. Isaiah prophesied 700 years before Jesus was born of his birth. And, and he let us see a little of his suffering that we won't find anywhere else in the Bible. Like we will see here in chapter 53. Some people ask, well, how do you know this is Jesus? Because some say it, that, that it wasn't. How do you know that this was Jesus that Isaiah is talking about? Well, as I said, Isaiah wrote 700 years before Jesus was born. Jesus, uh, Jewish writers have tried hard to apply this, chapter 53, to Israel and nobody else. And it's the same question the Ethiopian eunuch asked, remember, Philip when he asked him to hop into the chariot with him in the desert and explain to him what, was, what he was reading. The Ethiopian was going from Jerusalem back to his own country and he was reading Isaiah 53. And we're even told the exact place that he was reading in Acts chapter 8, verse 32. And as the Ethiopian, Ethiopian was reading Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 8, he asked Philip, again in Acts 8, 34, he says, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself? Or some other man. So how can we be so sure that Isaiah was referring to Jesus Christ in chapter 53? Well, Philip will answer the Ethiopian's question. In Acts 8.35, it says, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning at this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. In John chapter 12, verse 38, Jesus himself quoted from Isaiah 53 and applied it to himself. In Romans 10, 16, Paul quotes from the same chapter in connection with the gospel of Christ. So the scriptures, the scriptures prove that Isaiah 53 here is referring to Christ. And even more than that, it's a picture of the cross of Christ as he was dying on it. 
Now, verses 1 through 9 will tell us about the suffering of the Savior. And the rest of the chapter tells us about the satisfaction of the Savior. And you'll see that these two ideas belong together. Suffering and satisfaction. It doesn't sound like that makes any sense. But suffering and satisfaction goes together. Suffering always comes before satisfaction. And to a lot of people... You know, they want to take a shortcut to happiness. They try to avoid all the tough experiences of life. But we need to understand there is no shortcut to to satisfaction. That's not the way God works. That's not the way God does it. Even God didn't take a shortcut. Now, he could have avoided the cross and accepted the crown. That's what Satan was trying to get Jesus to do in Matthew 4, 8 through 9. Remember it said the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And Satan said to Jesus, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. You see, Satan tried to get Jesus to bypass, to circumvent the cross. And, and he says, notice, he says, I'll give you all. See, Satan, you know, has possession of the things of the world because God's allowed him to. Paul said he's the God of this world. Jesus, I'll give you all. Don't, don't go to the cross. Don't suffer this, this horrible pain and this horrible time. You know, just, just, you know, bypass the cross and you can have it all. And Satan does the same thing to you and me. But suffering always comes before satisfaction. In 2 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 27, it says, Then Hezekiah commanded them to offer the burnt offering on the altar. And notice, when the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord also began. You see, first the suffering, then the joy. We've all heard the expressions that, that back up this fact. We've heard sun shines after the rain. The sunshine comes after the rain. Light follows darkness and so on. And that seems to be the way God does things. And because it is, guess what? That's the best way. Whatever God does is the best way. Maybe you're sitting right now in the midst of life's dark dark times today. Trials face you. Problems overwhelm you. The fiery furnace seems to be your, your, where you're at right now, your present lot in life, and everything is bitter. If that's your situation right now, then, we, then you need to let your heart be encouraged and build up your faith by knowing that you are on the same path that Jesus followed. And that will lead to the light if you walk with him. Chapter 53, again, like I said, should start with chapter 52, verse 14. It's all one combined picture of the suffering Messiah. So let's begin with verses, uh, uh, chapter 52, verse 14, and we'll read it right into verse 1 of chapter 53. So it says in chapter 52, verse 14, Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle or startle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. uh, For what had not been told of them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. Verse 50, chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
So, in, in, again, in, in chapter 52, verse 14, it speaks about Jesus being so, you know, I, I deformed because of the, the scourging, the whipping, the beating, all that he took. You know, his beard being plucked out, the crown of thorns shoved onto his head, spit on, and all, all that he went through. You know, it says that, that his, his appearance of a man, he, he, people didn't ask, hey, it, it, you know, is that the king? They, or is that Jesus? Is, was, he, was that a man? Is that a human being up on that cross? And in verse 1 and 53, they ask, you know, Solomon says, or I'm sorry, yes, Isaiah says, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord have, have been revealed? Isaiah here, Isaiah in verse 1 seems to be making a complaint. Who's believed our report? What we've said. What, who's believed the message that was given about Christ? He's making this complaint because his message isn't believed. What was told to him, what was told to Isaiah, isn't be, being received by the people. And this is always the sad part of the prophet's job, the preacher's job. The message that they have many times is not being received by the people. When God called Isaiah in chapter 6, God told Isaiah, you're going to get a message that the people won't hear. And when you tell them my word, they're not going to believe you. And that's what was being said there in in chapter 52, verse um, uh, 15. You know, for what had been told, they shall not see. And what they have heard, they shall not consider. And that's exactly what happened. They're not going to believe the words that, that, that you're going to tell them, Isaiah. And God said to Isaiah in the New Living Translation, he said, oh, I'm sorry, in the, in the Living Bible, yes, go, Isaiah, but tell my people this. In Isaiah 6, 9, though you hear my words repeatedly, you won't understand them. Though you watch and watch as I perform my miracles, still you won't know what they mean. And so Isaiah here in 53, 1 starts with a question. Who has believed our report? Now the question is designed to call attention to the small number of true believers in the world and especially among the Jews. The believing remnant of Israel is, is sad at how few in that nation had believed their witness, what they had to say. The people closest to Jesus couldn't understand him. They only looked at him as the guy next door, the neighborhood carpenter. And that's the way many look at him today. Just another religious leader or a religious fanatic. It took faith to see the glory of God in Jesus of Nazareth. And you know what? It still does. Now we have brought before us the person of Christ. Here in 53, and and we're told a little about his origin that is beginning with his his incarnation uh, on the human side. Look at verse 2. It speaks of his lowly birth. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. Notice, he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus had no beauty or majesty about him to attract us to him. There was nothing about the way Jesus looked that would cause us to want him. Jesus started his ministry surrounded by the most humiliating circumstances. He was born of a virgin 
in a barn, basically, in a manger, in a cave, with a, with a shady reputation over his birth. You know, that did, that did Joseph, his, his stepfather and his mother, you know, commit adultery? So again, he was born with a shady reputation, born in a, in a barn, basically, born poor. You know, he, he was born in poverty. His cradle, like I said, was a manger. He lived in Nazareth. The name Nazareth stood for all that was despicable, and, and the word Nazareth was a play on the words of the text because its root word is Nastar. The root word of Nazareth is Nastar, which means a dry sprout, a root out of dry ground. And he goes on to say in verse 2, a tender plant. He was like a tender plant. This refers to a shoot rising from plant, a plant's stem or root. He says he's a root out of dry ground, which suggests Christ's rejection by Israel. And he says there was no form or comeliness, which indicates that the servant did not have a majestic manner. There seems to have been no natural attractiveness about the person of Jesus in a purely human way. He was really a contradiction of the ideas of man and a disappointment to every form of human pride. And then in verse 3, we see his rejection. He is despised and rejected by men, by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Jesus was rejected by his own people. Jesus really was a man of sorrows, but not his own. He didn't desire these sorrows. I'm sorry, he didn't deserve these sorrows. He didn't deserve what he got. They were our sours, sorrows that he received. They were our sour, sor- they were our sorrows. In a way, we'll never understand. He took our place on the cross. Because he knew the confusion and the turmoil that sin brings into a life more than anyone else. Because he was a man of sorrows. Because he was, he was able to comfort those who experienced sorrow. Because he has experienced everything that human beings can possibly experience. God did what none of us have any right to do. God has put the blame on Jesus Christ as he died for guilty people. God has pointed the finger at Jesus. And he's laid him on him, the iniquity of us all. What a bitter thing it was for Moses to come to his nation with high hopes and a loving devotion, ready to stand up for them and take on their oppressors. And then he finds out they refused to appreciate what he was doing for them. And they failed to understand his mission. That he was their deliverer. And in the same way, John 1.11 says, Jesus came to his own and his own received him not. They rejected him. That too had to have been one of the greatest sorrows of Jesus' life. To be aware of the intense love that was sacrificing itself. He was sacrificing himself for his people. And their total inability to understand him or appreciate him, or let him save them. Verse 4, we see his earthly life. Surely he, has, he, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
Jesus also suffered through the poverty and the sorrows of his life on earth. All of the things, all of the elements that make up man's cup of sorrow filled his cup with bitter earthly pain. Every sorrow that man could think of, Jesus took on. Jesus came to suffer and to die for the sins of others. In verse 4 here, the word griefs means pain. And the word sorrows means sickness, which referred to the consequences of sin. So the people considered Jesus to have been smitten by God. Because the law said, he who is hanged on a tree is accursed by God. Jesus was poor. He had to work hard for his own livelihood and his mother's. He was lonely. He felt like a stranger in a strange world. And his life was one of constant self-denial, repression, and intense hard work. He walked everywhere, again and again across the land. He worked nonstop, and, and he was often exhausted from morning till night. He was preaching and, and healing and helping his fellow man. And suffering was so strange to him. He'd never known sorrow before. It was a new experience to him. He was like a fish out of water in this world, out of its element. His whole being was open to, to, you know, so many different kinds of sufferings that our obscene character and natures don't know anything about. He suffered more things than we could ever, ever think about or know about he truly was familiar with sufferings others left him his disciples forsook him but sorrow never left him never left him alone verses five and six but he was wounded for our transgressions He was bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. Verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Through Jesus' death, he has made peace possible between men and God. Through his death, he, he, he... made that bridge where man and God can have this relationship where they, they can, man can cross over or, and meet with God. In Ephesians 2.14, Paul said, He himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down that middle wall of separation. Sin separates us from God. And until Jesus Christ bore our sins on the cross and died for us, we, if he hadn't, we could have never had a relationship with Christ. Jesus bridged that gap. He tore down that separation between man and God. The Bible says, be reconciled with God through Jesus Christ. And as Paul wrote this in Colossians 1.20, by him to reconcile all things to himself and by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross and you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind and by wicked works, yet now he, Christ, has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Think about that. 
because of Christ and what he did in his body through death, one day he's going to present you holy and blameless and above reproach to the Father. As verse says, verse 5 says, so Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. He was wounded for our transgressions. And he was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement or the punishment that he took, that he suffered for our peace. Why? So that we might have peace with God. Jesus died for your sins and my sins. And God laid on Jesus the iniquities of us all. And by his stripes we were healed. By the cross. Because of the cross we were healed. Now... Now we have a complete freedom from all of those things that caused the servant to die. And the idea is that by means of his stripes, there is healing for all of us. It's wrong to try and blame the Jews for the crucifixion of Christ. The Jews did not crucify Jesus. And it's ridiculous to try to place the blame of of the death of Jesus on the Romans. The Romans didn't crucify Jesus. Our sins did. All of man's sins. My sins. Your sins. Every living soul sins is what crucified Jesus. And if we want to blame somebody for the crucifixion, look in the mirror. We have to blame ourselves. It says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Because we, like sheep, had gone astray. We turned, every one of us, in our own, to our own ways. But notice, God laid on him the iniquities of us all. Verse 7. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Open not his mouth speaks of the servant's willingness to die for sinners. He didn't complain. He didn't resist. It also shows his dignity and his authority. Jesus' death was a failure of man's righteousness, of man's justice, of man's sin. But it was also our Lord's fully conscious choice. He could have said, no way, I'm I'm not going to the cross. Jesus wasn't caught by surprise. By all of the events that were beyond his control, he willingly laid down his life for us. It wasn't plan B. This was God's plan all along. Isaiah compares Jesus to a lamb that was led to a slaughter, a sheep that was quietly being sheared. Now, what's the meaning of this? What's the significance of this? His death wasn't, he didn't surrender because he was weak. His death wasn't a surrender to weakness. And it wasn't a defeat. It was an exercise. It was something of deliberate control. Jesus wasn't overpowered. Jesus did not fight back. He chose not to fight back. He didn't resist. He stood up in humble service for the sick and the wicked without questions or objections. 
He took what came from man or God without one bit of protest. And there was no way that he deserved the abuse that he got. Verse 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. From the transgressions of, of my people, he was stricken. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. So it says in verse 8, he was cut off from the land of the living. This clearly says that the servant, Jesus Christ, would die. He would be cut off from the land of the living. Here the verse grieves over how thoughtlessly he was gotten rid of. Like a common criminal, it was no big deal. His death was just another's another day's work it was just another execution nobody special just like all the others and from prison and from his mockery of a trial they led him away to die on the hill called calgary led him to his death but who knew he was dying for their sins and suffering for their punishment we didn't verse 9 and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Isaiah explains the cross from God's point of view. And even though Jesus was crucified by wicked men, his death was determined beforehand by God. Peter said this in Acts 2, and 23. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know him, Jesus, being noticed, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. But again, he was delivered, Peter said, by the determined purpose purpose and foreknowledge of God it wasn't an accident Jesus wasn't a martyr not a martyr his death wasn't an accident his death was God's predetermined sacrifice for the sins of the world and in what Jesus did in his actions and the things that he said his words he died totally innocent he gave himself up to death as an offering and a willing sacrifice. He literally poured out his very life to death. Instead of being buried with the wicked, it says he was buried with the rich. Verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now, it says, it pleased the Lord. Now, the Old Testament pointed to the doctrine of atonement way before Jesus died for our sins. It was a part of God's eternal plan. Now, understand, the father, it's, the father was pleased that his son should die because it would cover up the sins of many and it would reconcile them to himself. The offering, it refers to the trespass offering. That was the sacrifice of a ram in order to assure the Lord's atonement for sin. And here Isaiah describes the servant, Jesus, as a trespass offering. Now, even though Jesus was innocent, 
The father took pleasure in bruising him. Now, his death wasn't in the hands of wicked men, but in the hands of his father. But this doesn't in any way take away from the responsibility from those who put him to death. They were in control. Of, they, they were not in control of the situation. The people that put him to death, they were only doing what God allowed them to do. And the pleasure, you know, when it says it pleased the Lord, the pleasure that, that God had in view was the accomplishing of his will. Not that he enjoyed seeing his son suffer. Not that he enjoyed what happened to him. That might be what it sounds like. But the pleasure God had in what happened was the accomplishing of his will, a sin offering for the sins of the people. So all attempts of sinful man to produce a heaven on earth aren't only wicked, they're silly. It can't be done. And in the Lord's pleasure, again, there was no whim. It wasn't just out of the blue that he decided to do this, nor does that mean that the father took pleasure in the servant being bruised on the part of others. But rather it was the Lord's pleasure himself to bruise the servant. He didn't stay dead. Verse 10 says that he, the father, shall prolong his days. That means that the servant was resurrected to live forever. And in his resurrection, he triumphed over every enemy and he took the spoils of victory. Satan offered Jesus a glorious kingdom. Back in Matthew chapter 4, remember I read it earlier. Satan offered Jesus a glorious kingdom if Jesus would worship Satan. Which would have meant, again, bypassing the cross. But Philippians 2, 8 through 10 says that Jesus was obedient even to the point of death and God highly exalted him. And another part of his reward of Christ's reward, is found in the words, he shall see his seed. This refers to the spiritual seed. His spiritual descent is born to the servant after his death, that is, those who would be born again. To die childless in biblical times was a grief, and it was a shame to the Jews, but Jesus gave birth to a spiritual family because of his offering on the cross. Isaiah's statement about Isaiah's natural family is quoted in Hebrews 2.13 and it's applied to Jesus Christ and his spiritual family. Verse 11. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. The words his knowledge means having insight into one's mission. The word justify means to find not guilty and to declare righteous. Think about that. When Jesus died on the cross and we received what, you know, his death was for us, the forgiveness of sins, it says we are justified. It means we're found not guilty of sin. And we're declared righteous. And that enables us to, to, to have fellowship with the father and one day we'll be in the father's presence we'll be with christ in heaven christ's work on the cross brought satisfaction first the servant satisfied the heart of the father the heavenly father didn't find enjoyment in seeing his son suffer 
The father isn't pleased when the wicked die. He doesn't get any joy out of that. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So he's not pleased when the wicked die, let alone the death of his righteous son. But the father was pleased that his son's obedience accomplished the redemption that he, the father, had planned from eternity. And when Jesus gave up the spirit and breathed his last, he said, it is finished. In other words, what I was called to do, what the Father called me to do, to come here and to die for the sins of the world, I've done it. My mission is over. It is finished. Period. The death of Christ, the death of the servant also satisfied the law of God. The propitiation for sin. Now in pagan religions, the word propitiation meant to offer a sacrifice to appease an angry God. But the Christian meaning is much richer. God is angry at sin. Why? Because it offends his holiness. And it breaks his holy law. And in his holiness, he has to judge sinners. But in his love, he wants to forgive them. But you see, God can't ignore sin. God can't compromise with sin. Because that would be contrary to who he is. That would be contrary to his own nature and his own law. Verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors trans transgressors and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors so how did god solve the sin problem the judge took the place of the criminals jesus took the place of the criminals and he met the just of man, the just demands of his own holy law he was numbered with the transgressors. And he even prayed for them. So as the king, the Lord will divide the spoil of victory with his servant. The words great and strong correspond to the servant's condition after his uh, rejection, suffering, and death. The law of God has been satisfied now as a result of the cross and God can now graciously forgive all who receive his son. Grace is love. God's love that has paid a price and sinners are saved by grace. Justice can only condemn the wicked and justifies the righteous. But grace justifies the ungodly when they trust in Jesus Christ. And thank God for that. To justify means to declare righteous. We've been declared righteous. Because he took our sins so that we might receive the gift of his righteousness. It's his righteousness that enables us to have a relationship with the Father. Justification means God declares believing sinners righteous in Christ. And God never keeps a record of their sins. 
Psalm 103, 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. From east to west, those sins are, 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 are cast out. To east to opposite directions, they never meet up again. Psalm 37, 1 and 2, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not <clears throat> impute iniquity. Thank God for that. He does not remember our past, our sins. And when Satan tries to get you to think about your past, and to tell you, oh, you know, you, you, can't, you can't serve God. Look at the things that you did in the past. God can't use you. Your past is too dark. It's too wicked. Remember what this says. And just say, Satan, you're a liar. Get out of here. My father says that he's removed my transgressions from me. And he's cast them as far as the east is to the west. They will never meet up again. They have no bearing on my life other than I will never do what I did in the past. And if, and, and if God takes those sins, which he does, and he, 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 he buries them in the most, the, the deepest part of the sea and he hangs an old fishing sign, why do you go fishing for them? They're buried. They're gone. Expunged from our record, if you will. So in closing, the important thing to know is to know personally God's righteous servant, Jesus Christ, whose victory over sin is the subject of this chapter. And by his knowledge, meaning knowing him personally by faith, Isaiah says of God, my servant, my righteous servant shall justify many. And Jesus said in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, <clears throat> that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Father, we thank you once again for your wonderful word, God. And Father, help us to not, again, be so familiar with what Jesus did for us that it just becomes a, 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 just an, another fact or another thing that we know. But may we remember and bear in mind what Jesus went through, what he went through for me. And not to look at it as some little thing, but to remember that the depth of his love, his width of his love, the breadth of his love, the height of his love. As he was laid upon that cross, Nailed his hands and feet to that cross. Lifted up to die. And at the same time to draw all men 
to himself. So, Father, we thank you. We give you honor and glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Sunday morning, we'll be back in 1 Corinthians.